Welcome to Burnout, a Blueprints of Disruption mini-series. The goal of this series is to normalize talking about burnout in a more reflective, constructive way. Burnout is weaponized against us, but we seem to just accept it. Because although we acknowledge it, we somehow also ignore it. We understand its seriousness, but laugh about it. I'm your host and complete hypocrite, Jay Woodruff. I'm going to take the only time these folks have to relax to ask them about one of the deeper, more personal impacts of disruption, burnout. You'll hear how it affects their personal and professional lives, the tolls it has taken, how others process and deal with it, the psychology behind it, and more. On this episode of Burnout, I'm speaking with Marco Anthony, and we cover everything from education to labor to music to podcasts and many different things that it's amazing how much we take on when we are empathetic, when we actually are driven to fight for change and prefer action over planning. Not that planning isn't an important aspect, but when you reflect, how much stuff do you take on and how much of it is a source of burnout? Is there balance in those worlds? Does one balance the other? So uh, my name is Anthony Marco. I am a uh, high school teacher here in Hamilton. I'm also the president of the Hamilton and District Labor Council, which uh, places me on a couple of different levels of committees with, uh, within the Canadian Labor Congress and the Ontario Federation of Labor. Uh, also a general uh, ne'er-do-well around the city of Hamilton and around the province, depending on who you speak to. Uh, sometimes people like me, sometimes people don't like me so much, but I think that's, uh, that's just proof that you're doing something effective. So. I was trying to figure out what angle I would come at this from because of all the different things you're involved in and all the different things that you raise awareness and interact with online. So how about I start with the teaching aspect? When you're dealing with students and probably with teachers and with government, whatever interacts with uh, being a teacher and how horribly underfunded our education has always been. Yeah, it's so it's a weird situation right now. I'm in a very unique situation as a teacher right now. And I will I will say that um, I spent uh, the first decade of my career working in composite, a composite school, which is like your traditional three classes of 30 or more students teaching them common subjects and stuff like that. And then I went into the union office for eight years and I was working out of the union office doing health and safety and medical accommodations and a bunch of stuff like that. I went back to the classroom about five years ago or so, and I got a job in corrections. So it's a bit of a different animal being there because currently I'm in a probation. Um, There's an agency that uh, basically gets funded by the government to deliver education to kids who are on probation at the high school level. And so I will say that that's probably one of the lower stress uh, teaching jobs that you can have. A lot of people think corrections and they instantly think, oh, I, I wouldn't want to be there. Like, that's a bad place to be. We're not sitting in a jail, although we do have teachers that are actually like in juvenile facilities, locked down juvenile facilities. I mean, I go down to a building in Hamilton. I have these kids who are on probation show up maybe three or four times a week, depending on, you know, what's, whatever's required of them. And they work self-paced through booklets. And if they have questions, they ask me. So I, I got lucky in that I landed in a scenario from a professional perspective, a teaching perspective, where that's probably the lowest intensity um, in terms of what I could imagine uh, a teacher's 
a teacher's life and impact on their life to be because I have very many friends who over the past several years have just been hammered with all of the requirements that have been out there with regards to uh, hybrid teaching, COVID teaching, synchronous learning, whatever the heck it is, and trying to deal with that, you know, teaching kids in their class while they're teaching online at the same time with 35 students and trying to figure out how to manage all of that. I've been lucky in being able to avoid that as much as I could. Uh, forgive me for not knowing the proper terminology, but is the the criminal education system better equipped than public education? It's probably it's hard it's hard to say if it's better equipped. It's it's funded differently. So we are funded. I can't say we are funded. I'm I'm basically. Uh, farmed out by the school board to this agency. The agency gets their money from the Ministry of Corrections federally. So therein lies the difference with the education funding is it doesn't come provincially, it comes federally. And they will get a certain amount of money for every student that they have on their books. And so I've got a, a class cap of how many students I can have in there. Um, I have a child and youth worker who's always in the room with me uh, because they can act in loco parentis of the child if they if they had to. So in terms of funding for one on one, it's far better, obviously. Um, like there's there's definitely more funding there for the resources that they have. Plus, you, I mean, there's no scenario. There's no scenario in the current system that I'm in where I'm rarely teaching the same course to two different kids at the same time. If I have six different kids sitting in the classroom, they're all working on different courses. It requires that I'm flexible, but they're also working out of booklets, which require them to do a lot of independent work. And so if they need to clarify something with me, they'll come up and do it. Um, but for the most, like, I don't have to lesson plan every day um, because my lesson planning is being mitigated by my flexibility. So I could be teaching a geography course, a history course, a math course, a science course, all that different stuff at the same time and have questions coming up to me on constant basis. So I actually don't mind that. Um, I, I like to think that I can kind of cover most of the stuff within the composite education uh, to a certain grade level anyway. But I think that's the big difference is the big difference is uh, there's no like planning, uh, you know, days in advance for like a class of 30 or 35 or stuff like that. So I've talked to a couple other teachers and everyone's different, but for the most part, there seems to be a theme where because of the compassion involved with it, they kind of get burnt. Sources of burnout are individual interactions with students over a prolonged, like individual students times however many students after the working off hours, all the, all the, there's just so much to cover in talking about a teacher and the different sources of burnout. So do you think that the burnout that you, I want to say, avoided or are not exposed to by having what I, until this conversation, didn't even know existed as uh, a part of teaching. Has that helped prolong your, your existence in education? It's helped me to be as active as I am with other things. I would not be able to do the level of activism or even sometimes just grunt work that I do with Labor Council and with um, we have like, you know, the Labor Council has an arm's length, which is a, a workers education center in the city of Hamilton, which, you know, I'm also the chair of the board for that. It would not allow me to adequately do that other work if I was in a classroom. Like, I, I can't imagine one of the reasons, quite frankly, that I left the union office and went back to the classroom into corrections is because being in a union office five days a week, eight hours a day is way, way more stressful 
than being in a corrections class where it's for the most part kind of laid back. I mean, like most of the kids who are there, if they don't want to be there, they're not going to show up. And so, I mean, it, even though a lot of people think about corrections as, like I say, this hardcore kind of thing, in in probation, it's not that hardcore. I mean, it's it's fairly laid back. If the kids want to learn, they'll come there to learn. And if they don't want to learn, they're just going to come there and sit there and not do anything anyway. So if I was in a full-time composite classroom, there's no way that I could be as effective as I am uh, in my work with labor or any other type of activism. That's just the reality of it. As an educator, there is a lot of personal investment and I'm talking about time to become uh, an educator. And then on individual levels, on family levels where you know students who have family situations and there's an extreme draw on empathy and compassion and so on, especially when dealing with youth. When, when keeping that in mind, do you, do you recognize, do you have the tools to recognize burnout in students? I think it's hard to, here's the thing. I'm going to tie those, I'm going to tie the two different things you just said together. I had to learn early enough in my career to compartmentalize and to compartmentalize the idea that yes, I was there to help there's, I was there to help my students and I was there to be there for them. And I would always tell a student that was in my class, you can ask me the same thing 30 different times if you want to. I get paid to try and find a way to find something that relates to you that will help you answer it. So you ask me as many times as you need to. I'm not going to take offense. There's no such thing as a stupid question because I might just be explaining it in a way that you just don't get it. But very early on, you started to see a lot of uh, school boards will roll out of a lot of doctrine and dogma about different approaches of education. And some of them, if you were to do in full what they're recommending, you would burn yourself out within a couple of weeks, like the paperwork and the stats keeping. And then they want you to be the caring adult in the school. Okay, first of all, I don't have any social worker training. I don't have any guidance counselor training. I'm a teacher. My role there is to teach. And if I can help to direct a student who needs assistance to those resources, that's what I'm going to have to do. That's the compartmentalizing that I had to do early in my career to realize I can't be everything to this student. I can be friendly with them, but I can't be friends with them because that gets me in a whole bunch of trouble. And so I had to be able to draw those lines very, very early in my career because you're right, you can get sucked in. And I had a lot of teachers that I worked with, you know, who became friends with students who got involved in their family lives sometimes. And it was just, it wasn't always a disaster, but it, it was always messier than it needed to be. And especially as I started to become involved in the union, you realize that you open yourself up to allegations, accusations, a whole bunch of stuff like that as you go along. Like I've known teachers who have had you know, children's aid called on them because they might have said this or, you know, they put their hand on the kid's shoulder trying to say, you know, don't worry, it'll all be better tomorrow. And now the mother calls in and says, you know, this teacher touched my kid without permission. And so, I mean, it's, you have to draw lines, I think, if you're going to cope. The, the changing face of the classroom today, even from when I started, I've been teaching now for close to 25 years. And even in that time, it's it's changed enough where, you know, as as a former union rep, somebody who's just in the classroom now, I always said, you know, you don't 
physically touch a kid for any reason. I don't care if it's a pat on the head. I don't care if it's a pat on the shoulder. You don't touch a kid, period. You have to realize your job is to be a teacher. There are plenty of other people who get paid well to do their jobs, which could be social worker, could be counselor, could be a psychotherapist, could be a child and youth worker. Let them do their jobs. You do your jobs. And I hate to say this. I hate to say trust in the system, but at least trust in the workers that they know what they're doing better than you do if they're trained for that. The way we currently do education, is it producing burnt out students like each, for example, do we send them from grade school up to high school burnt out and then they have to grind through high school and then if they go on to post-secondary, do, do we introduce burnout to youth just not not the teachers, not just the way education is currently delivered and the expectations on the workers and so on and, and how horribly they're treated, as I think best demonstrated by the recent um, almost general strike over the education worker. I, I don't even know what to call what that ended up, but we, we know we're fully aware as a society that education is horribly underfunded. Yet we still demand so much of it. Are, are we normalizing the production of burnout or the introduction of burnout into our youth? I, I don't know that we're normalizing the production of burnout. What I think the education system is not equipped necessarily to deal with is if you had 30 kids in your class who were coming from similar situations in terms of family security, um, security in terms of shelter, food security, all of that stuff. I don't think the the basic curriculum would necessarily lead to student burnout. But the issue is we don't have that standard. There's no such thing as a standard when you go home and you leave the classroom. We try and make some standards when you get to the classroom in terms of I'm going to be teaching a 2P English course the same way as another teacher is going to be probably teaching a 2P English course. We're teaching basically the same content. And we're going to teach it in a way that, you know, doesn't, there have been a lot of changes. Like, I mean, I've got kids going through high school right now who come home and say, you know, my teacher doesn't give me homework. I used to have homework every single night. Um, you know, there used to be teachers who used to assign homework at the end of the class. Um, they've really pulled back on that idea in a lot of, so they've tried to, to take that away. And I think that those were useful things to do. But what we never know is we never know the lives of those kids once they leave the classroom and once they leave the school and when they go home, because there's a whole bunch of unique situations. And I mean, what we don't, what the school boards maybe don't do as good a job of as they should, or maybe, to be honest with you, just aren't encouraged to do is to find those um, you know, they, they'll talk about the whole child and stuff like that, you know, as, as dogma or practice, but they really don't want it. Like, how many times do you see a school board going to a city council to talk about housing in the city or transit in the city? How many times do you see a school board chair going to delegate in front of city council about food security? Um, how many times do you see trustees who are willing to go to the federal or the provincial government and, you know, take a fight back stance against them because they're not doing enough to provide for children. Forget about the school part of it, just for children. It doesn't happen. Now, that could be because they've compartmentalized their roles as well. But in my mind, if you're a trustee and you're a school board, you should be serving not just the education of the kids in a community, you should be serving the kids, period, in a community. Um, and the education starts far before they enter school every day and, and keeps on going far after they leave school every day. So I think 
until we have this kind of coalescence of the formal education system with what they're coming from and what they're going home to, uh, there's going to be kids who burn out under the current system. There's also going to be kids who don't burn out, but that's probably due to social factors that just are, quite frankly, beyond the reach of a lot of uh, classrooms right now. So to transition away from the education-focused and kind of labor-focused part of it, you do plentiful. <laughs> you do so many different things. So we were talking before recording started, and... I'm going to try and bring it back up in the same amazing way it played out then, where you do a lot of podcasts, and I was asking about the tools you use, and you had spoken about, it doesn't matter about monetization and metrics and all that, you do it because it's fun, it's creative output, so if... Like it, it's not easy to, it, for some people, it might be easy to talk, but to arrange guests, to have a focused topic, to take the time to actually organize a podcast isn't always the easiest thing. How do you keep it from being a source of burnout, like from starting to become burden, burdensome? Sure. Um so I started podcasting back in 2008, um, and I've, I'm somewhere just over 900 episodes of a personal podcast that I do. Um, we're like 10 seasons into a retro television podcast that I do, and we're a bunch of seasons into a couple other. And I've done a dozen or more other podcasts along the way. I, up until I was like 45, 46, I was a single dude. And I had a lot of spare time outside of my job, and I would be podcasting probably almost every night because that took the place of, you know, not, you know, having a family and not dealing with, with a lot of the other stuff that gave me. At that point, uh, I met someone and I married into a family where we had five kids at home. I went from being a single, single dude to having five kids at home, and that changes things. And ever since then, I haven't been podcasting as much. I still do. But the philosophy behind it has stayed the same, is that podcasting for... I grew up as a musician. I grew up playing piano, and I played every dive bar around Hamilton and a whole bunch of other places as well. That was my creative output at the time. Um, when you get to be a certain age, it really is tough to have your creative output being music uh, in terms of a performance level, because... As you get to your 30s, you just, you know, other people are working. You can't find, you know, people to have a band with, you know, sometimes you go out and you have. So, I mean, there was a period of time where I would go out and play solo. I'd play piano. I'd do some singing. But podcasting became a creative outlet for me. So it became the conversation itself to me is my creativity. So when I press record to when I press stop, to me, that's a creative process. Everything else is necessary to a certain degree, but meaningless. I don't want... Like, first of all, I don't have scheduled podcasts. I don't care when they come out. You know, if I record once every once every two weeks or once every two months, whatever that is, I don't care. I haven't looked at any metrics or listeners or clicks for at least 10 years. If it wasn't fun for me, if it wasn't an enjoyable process for me, I wouldn't do it. And I'm certainly, the, the part that's not enjoyable to me, because I thought about it way early on, the part that's not enjoyable to me is pimping my podcast. Like, I don't want to try and sell it to anybody. I don't want to worry about advertising. I don't want to worry about doing this, this, and this. If people who want to listen to it can listen to it, that's great. Other than that, as soon as I press stop, any joy that I take out of it is done. 
the editing process, I've winnowed down to as short a process as possible. There's a lot of people who get off on editing. I don't. Like literally I press record. The friends that I do it with, we record straight through, maybe for half an hour, maybe for an hour. I press stop. I chop off the top and the tail, put that middle part in, and that's it. There's no editing. There's no inserting a bunch of stuff here and there. Um, it's it's about as tight as I can make it. As The quicker that I can edit it and stick it up on the web, and sometimes that's five or ten minutes, uh, that's what I'll do. And that's really what it comes down to for me. So I'm doing a lot less podcasting than I used to for the same reasons, but I think what podcasting allowed me to do, and this has applied to everything since then as well, to me there is a creative aspect to anything. There's a creative aspect to podcasting. There's a creative aspect to certainly being with a family, building relationships, um, having kids that I never had before. Um, I, I think we can look at creative processes and all of that and, and, and the joy in creation and building those relationships and in the activism that I do as well. I wouldn't be doing it if there wasn't a certain level of joy that I had with it. Um, with the activism I do, being involved in the Labor Council comes with a certain level of bureaucracy as well, which is the part I don't like. Um, but the conversations and the activism is, is the stuff that I dig. So I think sometimes it's just reframing it. Um, but don't get me wrong, uh, burnout, I have been on the cusp of trying to juggle all of these things over the past few years and trying to figure out, you know, podcasting definitely, I lost a lot of it. I had to give up a bunch of it. And I'm at the point now where I can't take on anything else. And I realized that a few years ago. Like I was, I, you know, I was telling my partner, I was just saying, look, you know, she was saying, you know, why don't you go apply for this or be involved on this board or get on this board? I said, if I do something else, I got to drop something. That's it, plain and simple. Um, and my music is gone. And it's, to me, it's not a great loss, but like I don't play music anymore. And it's, it's not uh, that I don't think I will ever go back to it. It's just time. Like that's what it's come down to. And to be honest with you, when you redirect your creative processes towards other things, um, you don't miss it as much. I do miss it, but I don't miss it as much because I still feel that I'm being creative in other ways. Do you find, I, I don't know if you've ever actually actively paid attention to it, but do you find that the closer you are to burnout, the more you're recording podcasts or the less you're recording podcasts? The, do you get what I'm trying to identify there? Is having that outlet something that kept you from burnout? Was it something you did because of burnout and you just wanted to get away from everything and that was your escape? I think what I tend to do is, and I haven't really sat down and analyzed it, but I think what I tend to do is I think I tend to compensate that which is burning me out with the opposing, like what I just said, the creative side of it. So if the bureaucracy of uh, labor council work is burning me out, um, then I try to emphasize that stuff which gives me a sense of creative sense or a joy to it. In other words, I try to, I try to balance that one thing. And I think it's because... I don't want to ever identify one thing as the thing that's burning me out. Because if I can do that and I can't find a way to balance that, then why am I doing it, right? In other words, if I, if I said that my balance to the, the labor activism that I'm going to be doing is to play music, well, that's fine. But ultimately then if, if I have to de-stress or, or back off or find a creative outlet just to, to get away from, like my labor stuff is volunteer, I don't have to do it. Someone else will probably do it. Like if I decided I'm not going to run to be president of the labor council again, someone else is going to run ultimately. But if I can't find a reason within that sphere 
to find joy and do what I'm doing and enjoy doing what I'm doing. I wouldn't balance it out with doing something else totally different. I have to find the balance within that sphere in order to do it. And if I can't do that, I shouldn't be doing it. Um, not to say it's a bad thing, but I mean, different times in your life, you're certainly going to enjoy different things and not enjoy different things. Five years from now, I'm pretty sure that I will still be involved in activism some way, but it might not be in that form. You know, uh, taking away all of the uh, the minutia that comes with essentially being a low-level bureaucrat as the president of an organization, you know, that means that you have to go sign papers and make sure forms are filled out and make sure that these people are getting, you know, if this person is getting paid this check and this check and sign checks. That's the stuff I can't stand. I don't want to have to deal with that stuff. I would rather just, you know, try to do my activism, but that's where the balance is. So I found that I'm trying to balance within the sphere of what's tugging at me the most as opposed to externalizing it. Because um, like I say, once I, once I get to the point where it's like I would say, you know, I'm going to go podcast or I'm going to go play piano again just so I can balance out the lack of joy that I'm getting from labor activism, then I probably should be pulling back from labor activism and probably finding some other way to deal with it. Do you have that self-control to do that, though? I think so. I'm, 50, I'm, I'm 54 years old now. So, I mean, I'm getting to the... I'm getting to the point where I'm certainly not saying that I'm perfecting anything, but I've also been through, you know, I'm also old enough now that I'm not approaching it like a kid. Now, the only other way that this works as well is I met my partner through the labor movement. And so she is immensely dedicated as well as I am and understands it as well as I do. And if that wasn't the case, um, I certainly wouldn't be able to do what I do as well, because how can you justify telling a new partner, I'm going to go spend three or four nights a week doing labor council stuff or doing labor activism or going to this rally or going to this rally. If we're going to a rally, we're going together. We're bringing the kids like our family is tied up in that. And that's, you know, probably one of the benefits of meeting somebody a little bit later in life that you probably tend to meet through common interests, as opposed to maybe just being in the same place at the same time. Um, but we have that common interest. And so, you know, that's going to mean that if we're going out to a rally on migrant rights or, we go, or we're going to a rally on housing or we're going to a rally on um, disability benefits or whatever that is, we're going together. You know, we're going to go each other, go together, we're going to support each other. And you, you always have somebody to be there with. Having somebody to be able to, um, you know, have those conversations with on the way to and on the way from, that makes some of this stuff easier to cope with, I think, having that outlet, having that output. Um, doing the stuff alone, I think, would be more challenging and probably uh, would maybe lead to a bit more cynicism um, if, I, if I didn't have somebody to necessarily have that connection with. You kind of hit on something. One of the actual main reasons I asked you if you were willing to do this, unlike most people that I encounter, you don't just like or retweet or or interact in kind of a disengaged way. You are extremely engaged in many different ways. How do you keep that going? How Because a lot of people, especially when, when they're long-form fights, people have been fighting for a decade or longer, even a couple of years of fighting the same fight and feeling like there's no advancement in that fight, that's an extreme grind especially on a emotional, physical, how, how do you keep going on all of these different things in such a direct way? I think part of that comes from the fact that the concept of a labor activist has necessarily changed over the last generation, couple generations. 
it used to be that a labor council uh, had a bunch of affiliates and a bunch of locals from a bunch of different unions. And many of the unions were medium-sized. Some were big, some were small. Um, but they all needed support in some ways. Like if you go back two generations, a labor council would hold health and safety seminars and courses. And you get all these small unions who'd be sending their people out to these health and safety courses because the locals weren't big enough to draw in as many people as they needed to justify doing it themselves. So many of our unions have merged these days into these huge organizations and these huge conglomerates of unions. And they've become very bureaucratic and they've become almost corporate in the way that they operate. But certainly, I'll give you an example. A healthcare worker, someone who works in a healthcare union or someone who works in the steelworkers union, they don't need me as a labor council president to tell them what health and safety is. They've got their own resources to do that. And so labor councils have started to, I think depending on the community, but in Hamilton as a bigger city, we have evolved our perspective to not be about looking inward at our affiliates. Our perspective is we're going to look outward. We're going to look out at the community. And when we look out at the community, that means that we aren't the experts. In many ways, you know, allies will always, will always uh, make the... If you're from the labor movement, there's a tendency to try and think that you are the voice on everything. So in other words, if, if your union or your labor council says, you know, we're going to get behind this housing issue that's going on right now. You know, I've seen labor leaders who will go out and speak as though that they're the leaders of this housing issue. You're not the leader of this housing issue. Sit down, shut up, and, and let the people who need to speak speak. But that doesn't mean that I can't be an ally, and that doesn't mean that I can't contribute. So because we have made, turned this focus from interior looking to exterior looking, now I get to be in maybe what might people, people might consider a dangerous position is letting the expert groups do what they need to do, but be supportive of them. I don't know how many gifts I have or how many, how many capabilities I have, but one of them is at some level of communication, at some level of speaking, and at some level uh, through being a teacher of maybe distilling a message down. Uh, in other words, taking if there's like a you know, a 10 page article that comes up in the paper. What are some of the core concepts that are here that if people hear about, they're going to be able to take away from this and go, oh, that's what the real problem is here. Like we may disguise the problem during the, four, the first six paragraphs. But by the time you get to the eighth paragraph, there's the real problem. So if I can contribute in some way by sharing stuff and by, by helping that way, then that's, that's something that I do with regards to that. But in terms of staying aware of so many different things around me, it's really just come to my evolving philosophy over the past 10 years of being a labor council president is really summed up in three words, and that's listen with humility. Labor in the past has been uh, very strong, very loud, very opinionated. We still can be that, but when we're trying to be an ally and we're trying to help, we're trying to be of assistance, we need to listen, and sometimes we need to just shut up and sit back and listen, and that's what I try and do. And what generally gives me the knowledge that I need to to pitch in on all of these different subjects is that I've sat back and listened for the last 10 years. I've gone out to rallies and I've listened to 25, 25 people give their perspectives on some of the issues that they're going through with an issue. And I'm not going to be the white savior. I'm not going to be the champion. I'm not going to be this, but I'm going to show up. And I, I always tell people who are trying, who are saying that they're activists, the currency of activism is showing up. Unions like to generally think that the currency of activism is actual currency. They'll give money to anything. Unions got money and, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll send it out. They'll shovel out money all they can. 
Um, and that's great. Some organizations definitely need money. But showing up, showing up with the Labor Council flag at three or four dozen rallies a year saying, I'm here, I showed up, and we're here, we're listening. Um, that's what has given our organization here in Hamilton um, a lot more a lot more leverage and a lot more notoriety probably than a lot of other groups in the city because we're just, we're willing to show up. And that's really, but that's part of that creative and joy process. In other words, I feel like I'm, I'm being creative in how I'm reshaping my education. I'm being educated by people who give a shit about stuff in the community as much as possible. And when I go to a rally or when I have a meeting with them, they're educating me. And so if I can help take all of that and distill it and be allies and advocates for some of them, if, if they allow me to, then I'm going to do that. And so, so the, ultimately, that's, that's what's allowed me to, to take that on. I'm going to focus on the part that I really don't want to focus on for a little bit, but politics and the absurdity of politics, the fact that people who were never aware before COVID have been very aware and they're kind of running at it full force. And I'm seeing a lot of people just get ground to a halt really quick, no matter their age, no matter their walk of life with the start of the pandemic and it putting a spotlight on a lot of things that were hidden mainly because we're on autopilot, but there was a, a stark realization for many people who went from unaware to I'm going to change the world. How do you keep going in politics and how do you keep interacting with politics when it is not designed to be a very welcoming environment. So I think um, the term politics to me is has become more and more nebulous as we go on. And I think uh, many people who are involved as activists will glom on to a political party. Um, but to me, politics for the last decade especially um, – and probably has always been, but I mean, we all we all reach these we all reach these truths in our own way. Has gone far beyond what what any particular party is going to give us. Politics is about movements. Politics is about energizing and mobilizing people, and finding whatever way you can, whatever keyhole you can, to try and impact change that is better for your community in the best way that you can. So that's I think where there's to me. Yes, I'm always going to run into a level of frustration if I have to deal if I if I view the end goal of politics as politicians. Um, it helps. It always helps if you have a political party or you have municipal politicians um, that believe in what you're doing, that buy into what you're doing, that will, you know, help to champion some of the stuff that you're doing. But if I rested my and satisfaction in politics as being what the politicians ultimately do, uh, then I would be I would be in a horrible state right now because I mean I, I've been disappointed by almost every politician I've ever dealt with at some point and almost every party I've ever dealt with at some point. Um, and to me, it politics the power the power to make change. Um, if we only allow it to, re to live within politicians, then we're doing ourselves a disservice. Politics involves working with, in my mind, working class people and trying to impact change in that way. 
uh, change that's ongoing, change that's sustainable. So I used to get more frustrated with politics as I was younger because my view was was narrower and the idea was that, you know, I believe that, you know, we have to, we have to change the way that politicians think. Um, or I have to be able to go in and, you know, maybe give an eloquent speech to somebody at a lobbying meeting and be able to change, change their mind about something. Uh, it's not about that anymore for me. Because uh, here's the thing. Uh, I don't, I never care to run for politics uh, at any point in the future. I don't care if I piss them off. Uh, I don't care if I piss any side of, of the political aisle off or any politician off. I found that the most effective way to get stuff done um, is to embarrass politicians, um, to basically guilt them into things, to say, you know what, you said you were going to do this, you said you were going to do this, why haven't you done it? And to be honest with you, um, the only way, it's not going to be my eloquent speech that changes anything. If I come to them, I'll give you an example that we're, that we're trying right now. We're just kickstarting this right now. And I don't even know, we, I might have done, I may be doing a delegation to our city council by the time um, you release this podcast. But we're trying to um, get people who are most in need in Hamilton free public transit. So, but if you say free public transit in a city, most people are going to say, well, it's not free. We pay it with our other taxes. Why should this person get to ride for free and this person not? So I get that. I, and I don't agree with that. I think it still should be free public transit for everybody. But I understand that it's never going to go through. Like if you just say we want free public transit for everybody, it's just not going to fly. So what we're saying is we're, we're going to find four categories of people who we believe need more, need more accessibility and need more affordability. So K to 12 students, uh, people over the age of 60, anybody who's on OW or ODSP or anybody who has a disability, quite frankly, should have what we're calling care fare public transit. In other words, we're not saying it's free public transit. If you care about these people and you realize that they have limited access and limited affordability, we should have free public transit for these people to help them. So I know that I'm going to be taking this forward, but I can make the most eloquent speech I want to, but I know that what's going to make the most impact is when I drop that infographic or I drop that sheet off, that lobbying sheet off at a politician's place. I'm going to look down the side of that sheet and I'm going to have 30 to 40 community organizations who've signed on to that project because of relationships that I've built over the last 10 years and that the Labor Council has built over the past 10 years. So I'm going to have environmental groups. I'm going to have disability justice groups. I'm going to have a whole bunch of anti-poverty groups, housing groups, all of these groups that are intersectional with working class people who are going to support this. And I don't care at that point whether the politician likes me or not. I'm going to shove it in their face saying, I'm coming here and not just speaking for us. I am one voice that's representing 200,000 people in this city who say that we need a break on affordability. And one of the ways that you can do it is public transit. So let's work on getting something done. If the work has been done in advance and those relationships have been built, that is the most powerful type of politics that you can do. You can be all that you can drop all the logic you want to, all the science you want to, and that's all that most politicians are going to say is taxes. Ah, oh, taxes, we can't afford it. You know, we'd have to raise taxes, we'd have to raise taxes. I'm also the type of person that if a politician comes back to me and says, you know, well, you're, you're one of our constituents, would you want to pay more taxes? And I always say, hell yes, I will gladly pay more taxes. Just I want them to be valued. I want my contributions to this community to be a value added scenario. So if you tell me that it's going to cost me $100 more on my taxes every year to get all the sidewalks in the city shoveled, I'm good with that. 
You've shown me the value. If you say that it's going to cost me this much more a year to get um, free public transit for these girls, I'm good with that. If you're going to say that we will, that if we did this, we'd have to cut this, I would have to say, eh, okay. Like, to be honest with you, I, I, I say this reluctantly because I know that there's a bunch of jobs that it creates. But every year in the city of Hamilton, if you go down some of the boulevards and some of the streets, they plant flowers and stuff like that for beautification. And I think to myself, well, that's really nice, and it creates a bunch of summer student jobs. But I think, wouldn't those summer student jobs be far better if we were dealing with the houseless population in Hamilton as opposed to planting flowers in the middle of an intersection? Um, wouldn't it be great if, if we could find ways to reallocate this money for other jobs, like-minded jobs, at maybe even better paying jobs, um, that would impact people in a more positive way than driving around and seeing a sign, you know, which would say, you know, these flowers are here and this is the reason why we're doing them this summer. Um, there's so much more infrastructure that needs to be done that it's, it's really just a matter of saying, yeah, I want the value for my taxes. I believe in my community. I want to invest in my community. And I think taxes are one way to do it. And if we can convince enough people of that, then the reason why we're hopeful with this care fair approach to public transit is, you know, every single K to 12 parent in this city should care about this. Every single person who's over 60, it benefits them. Every single person who's on OW or ODSP who now maybe doesn't have to go to a bus driver and say, hey, I'm on OW or ODSP, you don't have to worry about that. You know, there's stigma to that. If you can go once every year or once every six months to a, a, a Hamilton Street Railway office, an HSR office, and just say, look, here's my proof that I'm on OW or ODSP, you say it to one person, and now you've got your Presto card which whatever, you know, people love Presto cards, people hate them. They're like kind of a, the equivalent of like a permanent bus pass. There's a lot of reasons not to like them. Um, but now you go on the bus and you just swipe it. Nobody has to know that you're getting this fare for this reason and this is why you've got it. There's no special thing attached to it. Um, we see that as a net benefit. We see that as a way to reduce affordability. Politics comes through relationship building and not with politics. There's always politicians. You want to get, but to be honest with you, the reason that I have politicians who are friendly or with me is because they know that I have the relationships with the people like those other groups. The only reason I get meetings is because we have a voice and we tend to represent a lot of people. The Labor Council represents 50,000 unionized affiliates. And by the time we're done this list on this care fair with all of the, the list of organizations down the side, the voices that come from those groups are going to represent hundreds of thousands of people across the city. And so that's politics for me. The politics for me is in relationships, and it's in relationships with working class people, not with politicians. Hamilton's um, one of the most unique places, I think, because it has, I, I think it has a sample size or a sample of every social injustice possible. It has the most politically aware and active population. It's just such a, a unique place to to see how much connectivity i'll say exists in hamilton but there's still a lot of shit going on in hamilton so it, it goes back to the whole concept of the show which is how does this stuff not burn you out where for example a lot of people in respect to whatever their daily life is and and the things they're enduring and surviving and so on to form those relationships, to reach out to those organizations, to to do all the groundwork seems very, I don't want to say unrealistic. I don't want to assume why people aren't acting, 
But for the most part, we saw it with the, the vote in the last provincial election. Like, people are just out of it. So how do you... When you reach out, and let's kind of hyper-focus on the organizing side of what you just said. When you reach out to these different community organizations or community figures or, or whoever you're trying to get to sign up on your uh, motion, how do you go through no, 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 no to get to that yes? I know you, you started this whole thing by talking about compartmentalizing, which is something I don't have the resources to do. I'm trying to get that knowledge and that skill right now which is kind of why I'm doing a podcast focused on this topic. But how, how do you keep all of the negative aspects? Because no matter how good you are at compartmentalizing, it's still, it's draining to exist aware of and fighting and organizing within the negative spaces to bring about change. So how, how does this, there's no creative side to that. You can't, you can't say that you balance it with a creative thing when you're talking to the people who are going to share their stories about the life impacts that they would support your your care fair for and so on. Like there's a massive amount of intersectional suffering that you, you there's no escaping it when you're fighting, when you're caring, when you're someone who's at the level of going to a city council to present. So how does that aspect of it not completely destroy you when it's negative weight? Like there's so many negative aspects to it and negative barriers. So on a couple different things. One, I would argue that there's a creativity to building a campaign, to putting the pieces together in the same way that you could assemble a song if you were a musician, in the same way that you would you know, set up whatever you needed to if you were recording a podcast, whatever creative endeavor you're doing. Um, building up the pieces of a campaign to try and move forward with it in a successful way has an element of creativity to it. Being able to identify it as a creative process is is a different thing, and sometimes that's difficult. You know, when you're in the trenches, so to speak, it's sometimes difficult to do that. Um, in terms of dealing with negativity, uh, the general philosophy, and I don't know that this is necessarily known by all of the coalitions and community partners who we showed up with. I mean, part of it comes from the fact that after doing this for 10 years, and let me, let me say this, it's not just me. You know, I, I talked about my partner earlier. She's the first vice president of the Labor Council. We have a lot of great activists on the Labor Council and on our executive who have come to us over the last 10 years because they like the work that we're doing and they all have their tendrils out into the community as well. So if I need to get in touch with this group here, this group here, this group here, this union here, whoever it is, um, I've usually got somebody who, if I'm not directly in touch with them, I'm like one step away. Um, and that doesn't make it perfect. There's still a lot of groups that we don't get in touch with, but there's a lot of them who we've, we've tied into over the last little while. And it's building a level of trust that you're not going to screw them over. In other words, if I get somebody to sign on to CareFare and say, hey, we're going to support this, this, uh, this low-cost or affordable, accessible public transit model that you're proposing, I can't then go up in front of city council or in front of the press and say something completely inappropriate and stupid. Because if I say that, I make them all look stupid. So they have to have a level of trust in me. 
And after doing it for 10 years, they know that I'm, 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 the odds of me saying something stupid are probably pretty slim. There's always a good chance I might say something stupid, which just could be innocuous. But generally, I'm not going to say anything which would offend them in some way. And I've always lived by, it's funny, when, when we were planning uh, May Day events and stuff like that, I remember about eight years ago, we were planning, uh, one, we're trying to plan one of our first May Day events with the Labor Council in a long time, like an actual event as opposed to just we're going to get together in March somewhere. And as anybody knows who's gone to post-secondary or especially university or been involved in, 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 uh, in progressive activism around their community, you know that there are like 18 different factions of communist, socialist, anarchist groups out there. You know, you, you, you have a different reading of a Marx pamphlet from like, you know, the second phase of whatever, you know, Marx philosophy was happening at that time and you read one word differently and now you've created a new branch of Marxism. <laughs> I mean, and it happens all over the place. Right. Like, so there are all these different factions and they like to fight each other all the time. Like we actually had this planning session eight years ago where we couldn't even plan a May Day event because nobody could agree with each other. And then one person said, well, you know, let's have a vote on this. And it's like, well, what if next meeting we bring 15 people to the meeting? Do we get that many votes? And it's like, this is the approach that I've taken from that point forward is let's focus on the 90% of the shit we agree on. There's always going to be 10% we don't agree on. Wait until the 90%'s done, then we can have a battle royal fight to the death for that last 10%. But until we get there, let's just all start to agree that whether I'm pushing for four different groups right now, they get. So, for instance, we've got a couple of uh, environmental groups in Hamilton who have as their platforms um, free public transit for everybody. We believe in that as well free public transit for everybody. Would they like that we? We're coming forward with a campaign for free public transit for everybody. Sure they would. But are they supporting us with these four categories that I mentioned earlier? Yes, they are. Because they realize that even though it's not this 100% free public transit for everybody, they understand that it's steps to get there. And they realize that our tactic is probably pretty sound that we're not going to get free public transit if we just go and start yelling and screaming and pounding our fist. But in the same way that we got all employees of the city of Hamilton to get paid a living wage over the past four years. The only group we have left is summer students, and hopefully we're going to get that hurdle crossed this year. But we went from no guarantees within the city of Hamilton of having living wage to all the way up till now where everyone except a summer student is making at least a living wage if you're working for the city of Hamilton. That was a process. That taught us that we're not going to get it in one fell swoop with, with the transit issue, so we're going to have to go incrementally. It's relationship building. It's trust building. If you know the people you're dealing with, you might get people who don't love the approach you're taking, but they like it. And it's okay. It's a step in the right direction. And I think you start to reduce the amount of naysayers and no's. There's going to be naysayers and no's from other groups, but we're not talking to them. We know, like, we're not, we're not going to go to, like, the, uh, you know, the Canadian, you know, Canadian low taxpayers group of, you know, a, a Hamilton chapter and go talking to them about this because they're just going to say, no, we shouldn't be paying any taxes. You know, we're not going to be going to some libertarian group talking about public transit. That's just not going to be the way it goes. So, I mean, but that just comes from, don't get me wrong. Will you eventually have to get probably some buy-in from people who aren't necessarily your coalition partners and your close friends? You might have to. Um, but ultimately, those groups are groups that as long as you give them something sensible, like the, the logical next step and the step that we're trying to perfect now, and this is after 10 years of doing this work. You talked earlier about, you know, um, 
at the beginning of the question, you talked about how, you know, reaching out to all of these groups, it can't be, you can't do this on a, um, for, for an election or for a campaign. You can't do this once every four years. This is an ongoing process, right? This is something where you have to keep on at it and at it and at it and at it. And you're going to fail somewhere along the way. And like, I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, and this came from our, our own ignorance and our own stupidity early on. Like 10 years ago, we thought that like, we should build up relationships with our indigenous, uh, indigenous communities in Hamilton. And let's, let's do that. We realized very quickly, and it makes complete sense, but we were just idiots about it because, I mean, I was a new Labor Council president. I didn't know I needed to... There's nowhere you go. There's no centralized body for indigenous people in the city of Hamilton, but you expect as a union person that there's a centralized body for everything, that if I go and talk to the leaders of this, we're talking about hundreds of different nations that are represented in this city and, you know, First Nations, Métis, Inuit nations that are all represented in different ways in this city. The thing that they have in common, though is there working class people? How can we appeal to this working class, this working class aspect of it? And that's kind of where we come from on all of this. So as long as we have that in mind and we have that lens in mind, the intersectionality with everything else, whether it's disability justice, whether it's housing justice, whether it's food security, we come at it through that working class lens. The one thing that the Labor Council can have where everyone else has their own unique lenses, you know, on different things, the one thing we can have is a working class lens. And we can be at least a little bit of an authority on thinking about all the different sides of working class lens. And so that helps to direct us. I think if you use that lens um, when you're a labor activist, especially, and you're going out and talking to people, um, I think you're starting from a positive note anyway. Um, you may not understand the rest of the lenses that they speak about. I don't know everything about the environmental issues in this, in this city. I don't know everything about disability justice, but where it crosses over with the fact that people, if they can, have to work. Um, workers' rights are workers' rights. Compensation packages are compensation packages. Um, all those different things. That's going to be the same for a lot of different people. It's, their lenses might change the way they look at them, but the basics are there. And so as long as we can find what we have in common as opposed to the stuff that we have different, and then we can learn what those differences are, I think, I think we start off on the right track. And I think that's Learning about that process has helped uh, helped me cope a heck of a lot better than if I hadn't. If I was just banging my heads into walls for the last 10 years, I probably wouldn't be in this for 10 years. So, I'm not able to ask this in a safe way, so I'm going to put the onus on you to try and find a safe answer. I'll give it a shot. Right, right now, uh, yesterday, they announced the first clear sign... The, the, per, the first admittance that private healthcare is coming to Ontario, which means Canada in a new scale. And there's a lot of pissed off people. It's coming after a few years of a global pandemic. Right? So we've people again at the start of the pandemic, so many people became politically aware and started paying attention. They saw the banging pots and pans for healthcare workers that were being underfunded and just ignored. They saw the realities in long-term care and the for-profit model. Like there, There's been a lot of realizations for a lot of people and youth haven't been able to be, um, I want to say protected, but that's not the right, shielded from it. So it's a full exposure thing. And here we are with the first clear sign that they're going to go, the government of the day is going to go full force at this. 
when labor, labor meaning unionized labor, I'll say just for listeners sake, there's a lot of people who feel like unions have stepped above the working class into labors and then there's workers and then there's OW and disability and seniors and students and so on. And without trying to explain why that perspective exists is this is the unsafe part. It is the Ford government, the the government of the day doing this, not a rally call. Is this not an opportunity where it's like somehow they didn't seem to learn the lesson from the education workers almost leading to a general strike? Is this the, the rallying point where everyone's like, okay, let's drop the identity politics. Who cares what flavor of the left we are? It's time to start dealing with shit. I wish I could say it was, but I, the cynical side of me says we're going to, that for the most part, Ontarians are going to lay down and take this. That's the cynical part of me. And that's because um, it's been incremental. It's been incremental for the past several generations. Um, stop thinking of Doug Ford as a buffoon. Yes, please. Thank you so much. Stop thinking that. of Doug Ford as a buffoon. <laughs> yes, I know he can come across like that when he does press conferences and when he's swallowing a bee. Um, but ultimately, this is calculated. This is, this is no different. And it's, if you think back to the 1990s, the Bill Clinton administration in the States did everything that it could. Bill Clinton was a complete neoliberal. As much as people, you know, think that he was the, you know, the great Democratic Party leader, he's by no means anywhere close to a socialist. He was a complete neoliberal. He allowed the education system in the states to completely collapse, essentially, so that he could bring in charter schools. He was one of the key people responsible for it. That's not to say that there wasn't a continuum which happened before then and after then. But the entire concept, and think about how close this sounds to Doug Ford right now. Remember the program that happened in the States in the 90s? They called it No Child Left Behind. And the way that they tried to push, the way that they used that is they said, we can't leave our children behind. The public system is failing us. We have to move to a charter privatized system because we can leave no child behind. Think about the speech that Doug Ford gave yesterday. We can't afford to leave these people behind. We can't afford to leave these people who need surgeries behind. Therefore, we have to privatize. In other words, set up the system to fail, set up the public system to fail until people demand that it's fixed. And the fix is going to be, the fix is in, is going to be privatization. Um, part of the problem, why I'm concerned that we're not going, I'm not saying we shouldn't have a universal kickback to this. Part of the reason I don't think we're going to have it is, um, one, there is a level of privilege that exists within Canada and within um, unionized workers and a lot of people across this country where we don't tend to notice the dribs and drabs. Um, you know, this, this, great, this great swath of people that even the left-wing politicians still call middle class. You know, I, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, progressive politicians that have appropriately started using working class again. 
But quite frankly, I've called out so many politicians, especially from the NDP over the past decade, who use the term middle class, and I say, stop talking middle class, you're dividing us. We're working class, and as long as we keep thinking of middle class, we're never going to win. Um, unionized workers, the success that we've had with unions in this, in this province, any successes that we've had in terms of unionizing and organizing workers and getting collective agreements and all that stuff, has helped to make us complicit because of our privilege. The privilege in having benefits, the privilege in having pensions, the privilege in having working conditions, uh, the privilege in having higher salaries within our job sectors than maybe some other people who are non-unionized have within our job sectors. Those privileges make it easier for us to sit back and not do anything or not get as involved. Um, and to be honest with you, unions, and I've said this to many people before, and it's to me, this is a reality. It's not meant to be a shot or insulting. Unions are the most necessary part of the labor movement. They're the most necessary part, not necessarily the most powerful part, but they're the most necessary part because they're, they're a built-in organizational group. They are also the biggest roadblock to advancements for the working class um, because they are self-involved. They look inwards first, not always, but first, because that's their job. It's like saying that any corporation, their job is fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders. Any union's primary job is to serve its members as best as it can. That's their jobs. It's like a corporate directive. And so when that is at odds with, with the, the wider population and what they're doing, it's, they're always going to conflict. And in many, there's Plenty of cases where the unions have every right to be concerned about stuff that's happening and plenty of other uh, cases where, you know, they probably sit back and don't do anything. But the biggest enemy that we have, and this isn't just unions, but this is people in general, the biggest enemy that we have is complicity through inaction. Complicity through inaction is what's causing all of our problems today and thinking that somebody else is going to fix it is just not working. And the only reason, the only reason why you have um, a, a federal liberal government right now that does a couple pseudo-progressive things or is pushing a couple pseudo-progressive things, and I'm not going to say it's because they have the NDP pushing them, that's not it at all, is because across the country they've got a bunch of conservative premiers in provinces. And so they have to balance those two things out to a certain degree. But let's not make any mistakes. The liberal government federally is still a neoliberal government. They're still all about P3s. They're still all about privatizing things. They just not, might not want to privatize things in the same way, but they've privatized plenty of things on, on their watch. And the McGinty government and the Wynn government, when they were in, they privatized a whole bunch of things as well. So privatization has existed for, for a lot of years. This is the latest round of it. We're slowly losing the concept of healthcare. It's funny, we're having conversations on one end about trying to bring in pharmacare and dental care. The, the NDP wants it to be means tested. Why does an NDP government want any kind of universal healthcare system to be means tested is beyond me. It's staggering that you want to means test something like healthcare. And on the other end of it, we're talking about bringing in pharmacare and dental care. And on the other end of it, we got Doug Ford who's privatizing surgery clinics. And he's saying, even up to the speech the other day, you're never going to have to pay for this with your credit card. Don't worry, we'll pay for it for you. In other words, we're going to pay the private organizations because those are the people who cut the checks for our donations. So I wish that I could say that this was going to get people up and going. It'll get maybe some more people up and going. 
But for the most part, I don't know. I, I, I hope I'm proven wrong. That's all I can say. I completely hope that I'm proven wrong, but I think it's going to have to, this is because it's so incremental and because it's not seen as COVID is still the crisis. A couple people who, a couple rich people being able to pay for their surgeries isn't seen as a crisis yet until the people who can't afford to pay for their surgeries can't get their surgeries anymore, right? That's what it's going to come down to. And by that time, it could be too late. I'm not saying it'd be too late forever, but it could be too late for a long, long time. You'd have to change things around. So I, I wish that this was the tipping point. I don't know that it is yet. I think it's going to take more. Um, I hope so. I hope there's enough people who would rise up to this. Um, but, uh, but like I say, most union workers, unionized workers, uh, they can preach an injury to one is an injury to all, all they want to. But when it comes down to it, um, you know, 30% of them still vote conservative. And how many percent of them didn't vote at all in the last election? Um, okay, so you, you've already given your resume. So there's a lot of people who are going to listen to that and be like, oh, you're anti-union. So when when you get, oh, there, there's so many people. So, for example, during the, the education workers um, wildcat strike, I, I don't know if it was a wildcat strike, but whatever term it was for I don't know the actual terms so the political protest okay so then (laughs) that's the safe legal word yeah so for me where I live there's two of everything because it's a francophone riding so there's two uh, uh, English public school uh, French public school and so on there's a lot of education workers here but there was no rally point because we're so close to Ottawa so I wanted to organize, I'm not in a union, I'm on ODSP. So, like, I'm as far removed from a union as can be. I wanted to show the people, not only the education workers, but the people in this writing, like, there's something going on. So as I was organizing this, and it got the support of a whole bunch of education workers, like, teachers were taking their lunch with my little rally and so on. At that time... I was also having conversations with, I don't think we'll ever see labor strike demanding the rates of ODSP be raised. I don't think we'll ever, just matter of fact conversation. But people are calling me anti-union. Well, I'm organizing a thing to support union workers and raise visibility and stuff. And you talked about the many flavors of the left prefer to have perfect conditions met before they act and all these different when you step back these are really stupid things to divide people and keep anything from moving forward but that's been normalized that's the reality of what we're dealing with where if you're too busy starving you don't really care to get out to vote even though organizing around this stuff can end that well i don't want to say end the starvation as a whole because on ODSP it's directly caused by the amount of money and support we get. So speaking solely from that position, there are so many on ODSP who go who gives a shit. But that's 500,000 people going who gives a shit. 500,000 people who think, well, I don't have any power whatsoever. And it's because we can't withhold labor. It's not like we can withhold our disability. So there's a lot of 
stuff that's been normalized I think my my generation I'm 43 so I was told and it's also cultural shut up about your problems don't air your problems in public pull yourself up by the bootstrap it is what it is and I'm seeing a bit of a change there but a lot of the youth and I don't want to say just youth a lot of people who are becoming aware are already deep into burnout they're already deep into compassion fatigue there's so many elements where now that they're aware of it who cares like nothing's going to change so from your perspective when people hear you saying unions kind of are their biggest barriers there's that instant oh your anti-labor reaction just that spew the weirdest crap to derail the point and so on how have you been coping with or managing or have you seen an evolution in how hard it is becoming to have matter of fact conversations because of all the noise and all the bullshit and all the all the results of what's been going on over the last few years yeah first of all um i am pretty i'm pretty much the furthest thing from being anti-union as you can be as being the president of a labor council uh, our affiliates are all unions and i have great relations with them i just i i just bring a certain perspective and that i my perspective is that there is unions and then there's labor and unions for the most part like i said earlier tend to be internal looking they tend to look out for their members they tend to look out for their issues of grievances and bargaining and all of that stuff and that's what their primary role is the labor movement has to be wider than that it has to take into consideration um Organized labor, which only represents unions, has a bit of a wider tent. But like I say, the issue and what we've been trying to do in terms of a labor movement here in Hamilton is completely look outward and just say, we cannot just be advocates for unionized workers. First of all, the Labor Council can't be an advocate for a union anyway because we can't speak for a union. The union's going to speak for themselves. So who can we go out and be a, help be an advocate for? And that's going to be for working class people as a broader perspective. So like I said, unions are completely necessary. And I think, I think it's an interesting, I haven't fully fleshed this out yet, but I mean, for the most part, yes, unions are becoming more and more, aspects of unions are becoming more and more corporate in the way that they're acting in terms of, you know, protecting a strike fund and protecting this amount of money and protecting the members dues and all that stuff. And that's their responsibility. But a lot of unions right now, at the same time, are realizing that the only power that they are going to grow in a community is through building community relations. So I'm seeing a lot of different unions now who are putting together either work groups or organizational groups or close-knit groups within unions whose sole purpose will be to go out into communities and to try and build the idea of unionized workers and workers' rights in general. So I know some unions who are doing this work and realizing that they are way, way behind on it because what they're noticing is they're noticing that every major political movement that's had an impact over the past 20 years hasn't been a union movement. It's been grassroots and not grassroots union members, just grassroots people in general. 
So I think there are unions that are waking up to this at the same time as their internal structures are becoming more corporate, their ideological structures are finally realizing that we really need to do some community outreach. The problem is, and I don't think some of them realize this yet, you can't be agenda-driven with this. You can't say, you know, every four years, we're going to try and build up some community support so that people will vote the way we want to in the provincial election. If that's your goal, you've already lost. This is an ongoing thing. This is something you have to be in the long haul for. You have to be prepared to do it for 5, 10, 15, 20 years and continue to do it. Like I say, there's the difference between movement building and running a campaign. A campaign has an end to it. And at the end of it, you can't just say all those relationships we built, well, we'll see you in another four years. You have to be there for other people if you want them to be there for you. They have to trust you. And if the only thing is that you do every four years is say, we'd like you to vote this way, that's never going to work. So I, I think ultimately, I am, I, am not, I am not by any means somebody who's against unions, but let's not glorify them either. I see, too, I see a lot of union pride out there. And I'm not saying that, that some unions shouldn't be proud of some of the things they do, but I would say that in every single union, there's a lot of things that, that can be criticized as well. Uh, let's be realistic about our unions. They're the same as any other body. They've got some great things going for them and they've got flaws as well. What we're trying to do as a labor council in this city, and we got labor councils across the country, is trying to find ways to bridge those gaps, those gaps that exist between unionized workers and their communities as organizations. How can we help to bridge that gap so that when education workers or healthcare workers need to say, we would love some support or input or conversations with groups of people around the city who might be having the same concerns as us, they don't know where to go. They know that they can go to their own members, but they don't know where to go. If they come to us now though, as the labor council who's been working on building community and coalition partners for the last 10 years, they come to us and we go, okay, great. We can connect you with this person, this person, this person, this person. We can connect you with all of these groups across the city. And when you talk about, you know, the fact that, you know, I, I sounded like I was like anti-union, the reason why all the union presidents across this city, I can't say all of them, but for the most part, they all get along with me and I get along with them and they support me, is they realize there's an immense value to this process that we're doing this building out from labor into the working class in general, that if they ever want to tap the working class as a group for whatever it is, information, support, whatever it might be, that we are now that, that gateway to getting there. And that's, that's, that's our primary role right now. So, but I think any union who beats his chest and says, you know, we're infallible, we're not going, we're past that point now. Let's get past the point of the pride. You know, you know the old the old concept of pride goeth before the fall. That that happens with a lot of unions. We've seen a couple of stories, very very recently about uh, about some union officers here in Ontario who weren't necessarily the most ethical with uh, with what they were doing when when they ran their unions. That's not necessarily a reflection of the membership. Um, that's just a reflection of the idea that uh, any kind of corporate structure is corruptible, and you know that's that's what it's going to that's possibly what could come down to it. But things can be changed and things will be changed. Like I said, they're absolutely necessary. They are absolutely necessary to have those organizing groups there. Uh, and the unions are the, the biggest organizing groups in the working class right now. But that doesn't mean that they're the be-all end-all. The union, the union density in this country is maybe floating around 25 to 30%. That means you've got a huge... The only way that you're ever going to win anything 
is by getting the 70% that's not unionized to understand what the issues are and to, and to kind of dive in on that. So, I mean, that becomes, that becomes the big thing. So kind of when I said uh, in the last question, why we're not ready necessarily as a society yet to rise up against the privatization of healthcare, it's because that 70% of working class people are generally untapped at this point. And we haven't been building those relationships. They have a better relationship with right-wing talk radio, some of them, than they do with any union. That's it. They'll believe the talking points that people say. They'll believe the Pierre Polyevs about taxation and how we shouldn't be doing this. They'll believe on how, you know, people driving around in trucks, which, ha- which have like F Justin Trudeau on the back. I'm never a fan of Justin Trudeau. I can't stand the guy. I would never, I would never put like an F Justin Trudeau sign on my car as I'm driving around the city and turn the national flag into like a desecrated hate symbol because that's what it's become for a lot of people. Um, and even then, I've got my own problems with the, with the Canadian flag, with the way that we've treated Turtle Island and our First Nations people over the past many, you know, many, many hundreds of years um, to the point where I've got my own issues with any kind of nationalism coming up. But, but those, are, those are separate issues. Like I say, that 90-10 formula, if you can find people who are willing to say, yes, you may not think that this is the perfect way to do things. I think that's what we really have to break down with people is saying, this may not be the perfect solution, but it's part way towards the perfect solution. So can't you at least get behind the part way to the perfect solution and then let's deal with the perfection of it later? I think that exists for a lot of different things. You know, so, you know, ODSP, for instance, there are people who say we should be doubling ODSP, we should be tripling ODSP. Okay, but if I say I'm working on a campaign where we can increase it by 50%, that doesn't mean that the people who want it tripled should dismiss the person who wants it increased by 50% for the time being. Get on board if that's where it's going for the time being, and then as soon as the 50% comes in, move on to the next thing. The entire concept of minimum wage in this province, 14 in fairness, 15 in fairness, right? The idea is every time they move it up one level, you move it up one level. And so I think if people can start to think of things as a continuum, as an incrementally growing process, as opposed to just an absolute, I think that's going to help get us there as well. Um, But like I say, it helps to build relationships. Without the relationships, it's not going to happen. People will listen to talking points in lieu of relationships. And those talking points are just going to drive us down the wrong road almost every time. I want to double check how long you're willing to talk, because I think we're the type who can be talking and it's, oh, shit, it's nighttime. I've got about, I, I put in the chat, I've got about four minutes left. Okay, so then with that, we'll have to, we'll have to go, I, I definitely love to have another conversation with you whenever you're willing, but it's whatever kind of end you want to put on this, whatever kind of call to action or whatever yeah. sage advice, however you want to end it, yeah. it, it's up to you how you'd like to end it. Okay. I'll, I'll try and bring it back to your, your, uh, your main topic or main theme anyway. Um, so here's what I would generally say to people is for people who are feeling burnout, whether it's work burnout, whether it's organizational burnout, whether it's political burnout, whatever that is, um, find the things that inspire you. Uh, I'll give an example from a couple years ago. Uh, when up near the Caledonia area, near Six Nations, when Land Back Lane the first protest started at Landback Lane, 1492 Landback Lane. Um, I admittedly know very, very little comparatively about, 
you know, the history of treaty rights. You know, I certainly know they exist. I certainly try to have that level of respect. But I didn't know enough to be an ally. I didn't necessarily know enough to, to have all of those lenses. So I drove up there. I drove up there two or three times over in the first month to try and see what support I could show to the groups that were, that were, that were moving in the 1492 land back movement. And every time I went up there, I left inspired because of the activism. And when I go to a rally, it's not just me saying, oh, I have to go to a rally. That's sometimes how it is, to be honest with you, because you've been to so many rallies, you're like, oh, I have to go to another rally. But I always leave inspired and feeling better than when I got there. Because being around people who are fighting for a just cause is inspiring and pardon me for an esoteric expression, but it feeds the soul, so to speak. Um, being around like-minded activists helps to feed and helps to replenish um, and I think helps to solve some of the burnout that you're feeling. Um, knowing that there's like-minded people out there, knowing that you're not in it alone, um, knowing that even though it might not be your agenda that's getting pushed forward, if it's an agenda that you can get behind, that's not a bad thing either. Um, because everyone's going to have their own time. It's going to be healthcare's time at some point. It's going to be housing's time at some point. It's going to be food security at some point. It's going to be um, rent control at some point. It's going to be a whole bunch of different points. It might not be your turn for a while. Your issue might not come up for a while. But if you believe all of those other causes are just causes and are, and are useful to be behind, then take some of those, t internalize some of those victories as well. Any small victory is worth internalizing and celebrating, even if it's just only incremental. So much crap is going the other direction right now. So much crap is going down the tubes and being dragged in the wrong direction that any minuscule change that you can make in a positive direction is something that you should celebrate in and something that you should internalize and say, we did something good here. And don't worry about, uh, I know this is hard, hard for a lot of people, I tell people when I work with my labor council, I say, I don't care if this gets, if we get credit for this or not. Like this care fair thing we're doing, if in the end everyone thinks it's city council who did it and what a great benevolent city council they are, I don't give a shit. Let them take credit for it. As long as people in this city are able to take a bus more affordably and have more accessibility, I really don't care if we get credit for it. I don't want my face plastered all over a newspaper or anything like that. I just want to get it done. Once you can release some of those, those, those elements of, of being concerned about that, um, I think it goes a long way. But I also think it takes experience. And the more activism you do and the more stuff that you do, the more that you learn that kind of stuff as well. And I, I'm, I'm not really meaning to be patronizing in the way to doing it. It's just a matter of just get out and do it. It's not about age or anything like that. It's like there are people who are, who are far more involved activists at age 25 than I am at age 54, plain and simple. And I, you know, I'll completely cop to that and admit that. Um, but the more you do, the more you learn. And whether that takes you five years or 35 years, um, that's ultimately where you're going to be. And you're going to hit those realizations along the way. That's a pretty awesome message to leave this on. Thank you so much for taking the time. For sure. It was fun. That is a wrap on another episode of Blueprints of Disruption. Thank you for joining us. Also, a very big thank you to the producer of our show, Santiago Halu Quintero. Blueprints of Disruption is an independent production operated cooperatively. You can follow us on Twitter at BP of Disruption. If you'd like to help us continue disrupting the status quo, 
please share our content, and if you have the means, consider becoming a patron. Not only does our support come from the progressive community, so does our content. So reach out to us and let us know what or who we should be amplifying. So until next time, keep disrupting.